Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called A Shocking Request and a Stupendous Claim, The Baptism of Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, January 12, 2014. The story of Jesus always surprises us if we observe the obvious. And when we see and hear what's really happening, it can be unsettling. The baptism of Jesus and the stories in Matthew's Gospel that lead up to it are a case in point. Every person has a genealogy, and we all hope that some of our ancestors were important people. Documenting our noteworthy forebears is a status booster, however tenuous the connection. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew burnishes his credentials by name-dropping Abraham and King David, next to Moses, the two most important people in all of Jewish history. His genealogy lists 42 men in three sets of 14 generations each, all very nice and neat. And then comes a shock. Matthew includes five sexually suspicious women in Jesus' family tree. Tamar was widowed twice, then became a victim of incest when her father-in-law Judah abused her as a prostitute. Genesis 38. Rahab was a foreigner and a prostitute who protected the Hebrew spies by lying. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow. Bathsheba was the object of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up. And then, of course, there's Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was unmarried and pregnant. Matthew then describes the birth of Jesus through five disturbing dreams. He contrasts Herod, the king of the Jews, with Jesus, whom he also calls the king of the Jews. You don't need to be a political scientist to know that imperial Rome would have considered that claim an act of political sedition. And who were the first people to worship the real king of the Jews? Another shock. Pagan magi from the east worship Jesus, whereas Herod tries to kill Jesus by slaughtering the baby boys of Bethlehem. The historical obscurity of the magi has encouraged speculation. Matthew doesn't even say that there were three of them. The Greek historian Herodotus from the 5th century BC said they were, they were a caste of priests from Persia. Others traced them to the Kurds of 2,000 years ago, which would be a delicious irony in our contemporary geopolitical context. By the 3rd century, some people interpreted the Magi as three kings, a reading which would provoke yet another clash of two kings and kingdoms. On the one hand, pagan kings from Persia who bow down to the newborn king of the Jews, 
and on the other hand, King Herod of Rome, who tries to murder him. Still more surprises burst the boundaries of this most Jewish of all the four Gospels. The young family of Jesus escapes to pagan Egypt, the sworn and symbolic enemy of Israel, the iconic place of 430 years of bondage. But it's in Egypt that they find refuge and protection. In the end, King Herod died, about 4 B.C., not King Jesus. Jesus returned and settled in the town of Nazareth in the district of Galilee, a village so insignificant that it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, in the historian Josephus, or in the Jewish Talmud. Can anything good come from Nazareth? asked Nathaniel in John chapter 146. Except for Luke's story about the boy Jesus in the temple, these four pages in Matthew are all we know about him before he began his public ministry. He otherwise remains shrouded in historical obscurity for 30 years. This part of Jesus' life seems to have been so ordinary and so invisible that it became entirely forgettable. Eventually, though, there emerged a tension between Jesus' filial identity with God the Father and his obedience to his earthly parents. That obedience gave way to a radical rupture, for by the time of his public ministry, his own family tried to apprehend him, and the entire village of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. This brings us to his baptism. After living in anonymity and obscurity for 30 years, Jesus left his family and joined the movement of his eccentric cousin, John. Whereas John's father had been part of the religious establishment as a priest in the Jerusalem temple, John fled the comforts and corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert. Living on the margins of society, both literally and figuratively, he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Contrary to what you might have expected from such an ascetic man in an austere message, people flocked to John. Even 20 years later in faraway Ephesus, people still submitted to the baptism of John. Yet another shock, Jesus asks to be baptized by John. This is an explicit role reversal. John had predicted that Jesus would baptize us with a figurative baptism of fire. And now Jesus asked John for a literal baptism by water. With some important stylistic differences, all four Gospels include Jesus' baptism by John. We read, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you 
I am well pleased. Why did Jesus the Greater submit to baptism for the forgiveness of sin by John the Lesser? Did he need to repent of his own sins? The earliest witnesses of his baptism ask this question because in Matthew's Gospel, John tried to dissuade Jesus. Why do you come to me? I need to be baptized by you. Crossan argues that there was an acute embarrassment about Jesus' baptism. Even a hundred years later, Jesus' baptism troubled some Christians. In the non-canonical Gospel of the Hebrews, Jesus denies any need to repent and seems to get baptized to please his mother. <clears throat> Jesus' baptism inaugurated his public ministry by identifying with the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. He identified himself with the faults and failures, the pains and the problems of all the broken people who had flocked to the Jordan River. By wading into the waters with them, he took his place with us. Not long into the public mission, the sanctimonious religious leaders derided Jesus as a friend of gluttons and sinners. As his baptism shows, they were right. But none of this comes close to the biggest bombshell of the baptismal story, the stupendous claim of a Trinitarian confession. Jesus' baptismal solidarity with broken people was confirmed by God's affirmation and empowerment. Still wet with water after John had plunged him beneath the Jordan River, Jesus heard a voice and saw a vision. The declaration of God the Father that Jesus was his beloved Son and the, the descent of God the Spirit in the form of a dove. The vision and the voice punctuated the baptismal event. They signaled the meaning, the message, and the mission of Jesus as he went public after 30 years of invisibility. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Son of God embodied his Father's unconditional love of all people everywhere. For books this week, I review a title called You Are Not a Gadget. The author is Jaron Lanier, New York, Knopf, 2010, 211 pages. Jaron Lanier once described himself as a weird outsider. He was born in New York City, but grew up in rural New Mexico. He entered college at age 13, but never finished a degree. His waist-length dreadlocks, his ample girth, and high-pitched voice give him a guru demeanor. He's an artist, musician, and composer 
who has a world-class collection of rare instruments. His specialty is computer science. In 2010, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. For over 30 years, Lanier has pioneered all sorts of computer technology. Back in the 1980s, he was one of the inventors of virtual reality, and what he calls one of the merry band of idealists, which is to say that he has impeccable geek cred. In this manifesto, though, he explains how his early sweet faith in the Internet revolution has turned sour, and why he is mostly now what he calls a humanist Sophie. His target is what he calls the new religion of cybernetic totalism. Lanier contrasts the lifeless world of pure information with the rich mystery of being human. He defends human intelligence, judgment, and artistic creativity against the pseudo-wisdom of computer algorithms, search engines, and aggregators. Information technology, he says, is necessarily a form of social engineering, and in his view, the results have been horrible. His book contains dozens of examples, but they are really just different aspects of a singular big mistake. The deep meaning of personhood is being reduced by illusions of digital bits. Facebook, for example, has given us fake friends. Google gives us free stuff, but by linking search with advertisement, the user is really the used who has become the product. YouTube is little more than a platform for a juvenilia. Gadget fetishism is everywhere. These are spiritual failures that degrade us, and they lead to all sorts of bad behavior, says Lanier. A very few token people have made millions on the Internet, but for the mass, vast majority, it's been a disaster. In some, writes Lanier, cybernetic totalism has been bad for spirituality, morality, and business resulting in a creeping degradation of our own qualities as human beings. The New York Times listed this book as one of the ten best books of 2010. For Jaron Lanier's most recent thoughts about the deleterious impact of Internet orthodoxy, see his brand new book, Who Owns the Future? For similar critiques, include Yevgeny Morozov's To Save Everything, Click Here, The Folly of Technological Solutionism, and also the novel by Dave Eggers called The Circle. Once again, the title, You Are Not a Gadget, by Jaron Lanier. For movies this week, I review a film from Cuba. It's called Chico and Rita, 2010. This animated romance might not put Pixar out of business, but it was still nominated for an Oscar in 2012 as Best Animated Feature Film. It's a sad love story that begins in 1948 Havana, 
and ends up 60 years later in Las Vegas. A fictional jazz pianist named Rico was smitten by a singer named Rita. Together they win a music competition in Havana. But then an American manager named Ron, who sports a pencil mustache, takes Rita to New York, where she finds fame. Their stormy relationship takes us on a nostalgic tour of a bygone era. The jazz clubs of Havana, New York, Paris, and Las Vegas. Dances like the Mambo and Rumba. And music legends like Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, and Chano Pazzo. The story is told through Rico's flashbacks from his contemporary perspective as an aging shoeshiner back in post-revolutionary Cuba. As if his love story with Rita was not sad enough, jazz, as in, jazz in his elderly years had become the music of what he calls the imperialist enemy. In Spanish, with English subtitles, I watched this movie on Netflix streaming, Chico and Rita. And for the new year 2014, we've posted a poem by Alfred Tennyson, who lived from 1809 to 1892. It's called A New Year's Poem. <clears throat> Ring out, wild bells, to the wild sky, the flying cloud, the frosty light. The year is dying in the night. Ring out, wild bells, and let him die. Ring out the old, ring in the new. Ring, happy bells, across the snow. The year is going, let him go. Ring out the false, ring in the true. Ring out the grief that saps the mind. For those that hear we see no more. Ring out the feud of rich and poor. Ring in redress to all mankind. Ring out a slowly dying cause in ancient forms of party strife. Ring in the nobler modes of life with sweeter manners, purer laws. Ring out the want, the care, the sin, the faithless coldness of the times. Ring out, ring out my mournful rhymes, but ring the fuller minstrel in. <clears throat> ring out false pride in place and blood, the civic slander and the spite. Ring in the love of truth and right, ring in the common love of good. Ring out old shapes of foul disease, Ring out the narrowing lust of gold. Ring out the thousand wars of old. Ring in the thousand years of peace. Ring in the valiant man and free, the larger heart, the kindlier hand. Ring out the darkness of the land. Ring in the Christ that is to be. A New Year's Poem by Alfred Tennyson. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 12, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. 